I just always feel like an advocate for the artist. That's mm-hmm. the main thing. It's sure. almost like being a lawyer. You you pick an argument when you're putting an exhibition together. You have a thesis and you defend that thesis mm-hmm. throughout the run of the exhibition. Every time you give a tour, every time you speak publicly. And so for me, the idea would be I'm advocating for that artist or for that show. Hey, guys, I'm Tara Wilson, and this is the Fierce Lab podcast, a series where women explore what it means to be confident, capable, and strong. That's fierce, and we're here for it. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Andrea Carnes, Senior Curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. We discuss her first exposure to art, as well as how she started her career. Hey, spoiler alert, she was the receptionist at the museum. And we chat about her efforts to make modern art accessible to all. To learn more about the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth and Andrea's work, you can visit their website, themodern.org. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me today. In studio live, I'm here with Andrea Carnes, the senior curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Tara. Happy to be here. I've known you for a couple of years, kind of on the periphery, being a member of the Modern, but I've been watching the work that you're doing for the Modern Art Museum, and I'm so inspired and impressed, and I just felt like our listeners would love hearing from you and the work that you do. Absolutely. I'm I'm happy to be here and talk about it. It's my story is a little bit different, I think, than a lot of people today entering the art world. But certainly we all have our own story. Well, that's one of the things I want to get into. You know, I mentioned that I'd like to speak to you about like how you started your career. Were you exposed to art as a child Mm -hmm. and art museums? Or was this something that grew organically for you at a later age? I'd really love to know about how that came about? Well, in a nutshell, when I was 12, my mother took me to New York and then to Italy where we had family. Mm-hmm. And I had never traveled. I don't even think I'd been on a plane before that. I'm, I'm not sure. But we went to the museums in New York. Mm-hmm. But then when we went to Italy, we visited, you know, we went to Rome, we went to Naples, we went to Florence, we hit all those spots. And it was a big deal for us to go at that Mm -hmm. time. My mother had never been to Europe either, but it was actually seeing really the Renaissance art that I saw there Mm -hmm. that made me understand in this really basic way at age 12, that every object is tied to the history and culture that it comes from. Mm -hmm. And that seems like an obvious thing, maybe Mm -hmm. like, of course, you know, this is about what was going on at the time. But I don't know, to a 12-year-old, I just put it together Mm -hmm. when I was seeing all of it, Mm -hmm. you know. And so then I, I'm not um, very creative thinker in terms of making art myself. (laughs) So I just sort of became interested in studying art, which I really didn't get to do until I got to college. But that's really where it began. As a child, were you interested in history as well? And so it was easy to make that connection that you had this love of history and then you saw these Mm -hmm. objects and they were created during that time period? Or was it just something completely new for you when you were seeing all these Renaissance pieces? I think I was always interested in history and in pop culture, which is probably what led Mm -hmm. me to modern art. Um, But in history in general and 
because this was pre-globalization, you know, <laughs> pre-internet by, by a long shot, I think that that trip also made me understand that the world is really big mm-hmm. and that everyone doesn't do everything in the same way mm-hmm. and how fascinating it is to look at different cultures and understand what comes out of a culture visually, mm-hmm. you know, and that really, it started at age 12 for me. And and I, now the world is, it, because of globalization and the internet, maybe it seems a little more homogenized. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to wait three years now to wear what the girls in New York are wearing. Right. We can all do it at the same time. Fast fashion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it was different then. And I think I was just fascinated in what the differences are, mm-hmm. but also what the similarities are culturally. Sure. Well, and you you brought up the pop art, very different from Renaissance work. So how did that shift change and how did you discover that you leaned more in this direction for this style of art than the other? Well, I think that's just a, I'm interested in all art from all eras pretty mm-hmm. much. And I studied art very broadly when I started, you know, as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. But it's a philosophical thing for me, I think. I like working with living artists. Mm. And I also like scholar, you know, being part of scholarship that isn't necessarily always backed up by volumes of other scholarship. Mm. So when you're writing about a contemporary artist, I mean, not in every case by any means, but a lot of times, if it's a younger artist, you're sort of jumping off the high dive because you're not able to read so, so much about that artist that's already written. You kind of have to engage with the person. Well, and you're also creating their narrative in some ways. You're evolving with them by taking that chance and working. And maybe you don't perceive it as taking a chance, but you're working with them to create their narrative and their story. Do you agree? It's definitely taking a chance, I would say. (laughs) And, you know, I feel like my job isn't always to agree with what an artist says about their own work. Like as a curator, sometimes I'm, I can bring something more objective than, of course, the person who made it can bring. Mm -hmm. And that comes to not only writing, but also installing an exhibition or choosing the works that will be in an exhibition you know, someone who's so close to it isn't always able to see, I don't want to say simplistic, but like a an easy storyline for someone else to follow. Mm-hmm. A visitor who could range from, I've never heard of this person before, to being like someone who's a super fan or mm-hmm. an expert on someone's work. But I think the scholarship part is tricky mm-hmm. because... What an art historian does is not always just record exactly what an artist would say they're doing. Mm-hmm. So there can be a little bit of a disagreement. But, you know, ultimately, you want both sides happy. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's step back and let's talk about what does it mean to be a curator at a museum? Talk about that role. What's that like? Well, that role has changed a lot since I started my career. But I guess, you know, it's it's hard to sum it up. But I guess in a nutshell... I feel like I am a steward for all the artists who are in the collection at the Modern Art Museum and all of the artists who whose work I want to show or we want to show in the museum. And so what I always hope to do is best represent an artist, any particular, you know, whether it's a group show or a monographic exhibition, mm-hmm. to show the highlights of a person's career 
or the work that best fits the theme, if it's a group show, not only to have the right work chosen, Mm. but also to put it in the right place within an exhibition. And then, you know, the other, I just always feel like an advocate for the artist. That's Mm -hmm. the main thing. It's almost like being a lawyer. You, You pick an argument when you're putting an exhibition together. You have a thesis and you defend that thesis Mm -hmm. throughout the run of the exhibition, every time you give a tour, every time you speak publicly. And so for me, the idea would be I'm advocating for that artist or for that show. Mm -hmm. And I also want to put everything in the right place to make each work sing or, you know, again, like present whatever the loose or tight story Mm -hmm. is. Sure. It's like being a lawyer. And it's your job to defend what you think about the exhibition and the pieces that you've chosen for it. Let's talk a little bit. Let's go back to you went to UNT for undergraduate and you went to TCU here in Fort Worth for your graduate work. What did those types of courses look like? And and at that point, did you know, like, I definitely want to go to work for a museum or did you have some other aspirations as well? I knew that I wanted to major in art history as an undergraduate at UNT. I didn't really have a clue what people did who worked inside Mm. museums. (laughs) So that was a a day when internships weren't readily available or really even heard of. So I didn't, I just knew I wanted, I mean, there there was a great deal of naivety. So how did you explore the field then? I think you make a really good point. Internships weren't really available. You probably had some ideas of what you thought it was, but you didn't really know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very common for young women as they're starting their careers. They have a vision, but they're not really sure that what they think it is is what it is. So how did you explore it? Well, I continue to just do what I loved or study what I loved Mm -hmm. at UNT. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree, I... (laughs) The Modern Art Museum was advertising for a receptionist position. Mm -hmm. And so I applied for that position and I got the job. I love it. And at that time, we were not in the building we're in now. Mm -hmm. The building was small. The staff was tiny and no one had support staff. Mm -hmm. So my job was to answer the phones. At that time, this was 1989, to look through all the newspapers. At that time, there was... There were two Dallas papers and a Fort Worth paper, as well as the New York Times, and cut out all of the articles related to art. Oh, wow. And so I read four newspapers every day, cut them out, circulated them. I know Uh this sounds crazy. No, I'm loving this. (laughs) I also had a desktop computer with a hamster on a treadmill in it. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it was early days. Yeah. Well, and let's, let's examine that. I mean, You knew you wanted to be in the world of art. You knew, it sounds like, that you wanted to work at a museum, Mm -hmm. yet not knowing fully what that meant. Mm -hmm. But you found an opportunity, which was truly at the bottom, Mm -hmm. and you did what it took probably to get the exposure. So you read four papers a day, you answered the phones. Were you raising your hand for, hey, can I sit in that meeting or can I go on that call with you? To get more exposure? I was just raising my hand for, if you have anything you need done, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm sitting here, you know, answering Mm -hmm. the phones. And um, 
And most people took me up on that. Mm -hmm. So within a year, I became a research assistant. And then in the next couple of years, I became the registrar Mm -hmm. at the museum. And it was what does that mean to be the registrar? Oh, the registrar in a museum is sort of like the same thing as a registrar at a university. For example, you're a record keeper, but instead of tracking each student, you're tracking each object in a mm-hmm. collection or any other work of art that comes in or out of the building for any reason. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's archival, it's record keeping, it's keeping up with insurance, and it's also a great deal of logistics like how to get a work of art from one door of one institution to another door Mm -hmm. of another institution. Mm -hmm. It was a great job for me to have as a young single woman because I got to travel the world. Because I don't know if people realize this, but a lot of times if someone borrows something from our collection and it's over a certain value or it's fragile or for a number of reasons, someone from our museum goes with it. Uh And it's usually the registrar, or at least the registrar is in charge of deciding who will go. Uh So I got to go to museums all over the world and see how they operated, Mm -hmm. but also and see the world. Sure. So that was a really great role. I knew by that time I wanted to be a curator, but I hadn't gone to graduate school yet. So Mm -hmm. that was just like a great, position to be in while I went to school. And it sounds like a stepping stone. Yeah. It was giving you the exposure and the opportunity to learn. You were learning different facets from within the museum, rounding out um, your career path. I think that's really important to note because when I talk with and mentor young women, Mm -hmm. there's always this focus on where I want to be in the Mm -hmm. end. And I think that's really great. You have to know where you're going Mm because if you don't, you'll never get there. But I think sometimes we skip over the starting points. I mean, for me, it was, you're right, a sort of stepping stone, but it is a full-blown career in its own right. And I could have been happy to stay there, but I wanted, I had ideas about exhibitions and I wanted to pursue them. Mm -hmm. So I went to our chief curator at the time and and just said, I'm going to leave and go to graduate school. I'd love to know if you'd write me some letters of recommendation. And he said, he was new at the Modern. It was the early 90s. And he said, well, there will be opportunity for you here. And so maybe you should look at going to graduate school here Uh and staying in the museum because no one knows this yet, but we're building a new building. Uh And so we're going to grow and we're going to have more space for more curators. And so I did. I applied to the program at TCU. I was the registrar for about five-ish years, maybe a little more. And it was TCU's fledgling program um, at it was 98, I believe I started, for art history. So it was me and three other students. Oh, wow. That's small. It was tiny. And they were full time and I was three quarters time. <laughs> so it took me a little bit. I was not the first graduating class, but it took me a little bit, one more semester or something. I, I want to touch on the fact that you went to the chief curator and you mentioned, hey, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go off to grad school. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to point out that you have to let other people know mm-hmm. what types of opportunities you're seeking for yourself. But you also have to trust that if you're talented, people want to help you grow and develop. 
sometimes we get caught up and think, oh, you know, my boss will never agree to that or, oh, I I don't want to tell my boss. But Mm -hmm. instead, going to someone and speaking up for yourself and sharing what you're trying to do and asking if they'll help advocate for you. Because talent is talent is talent. Mm -hmm. And I think people hate to lose talent. Well, I think for anyone... Any young person starting out, it's important to remember if you're willing to and want to stay in an institution and you're doing a good job, the other people there are going to want, like you, like you just said, Tara, are going to want to help you mm-hmm. because I think Michael was probably looking at the ecology of the museum and like how to keep the ecosystem good, how to keep the people who want to mm-hmm. be there, there, but keep everyone advancing or doing what they what I guess I'm saying is, yes, mm-hmm. you know, other people, if they're good supervisors, sure. you know, see your potential and want to help you harness Sure. It. Do you have direct reports now in the position that you're in? Direct reports to me? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. And have you found that your early career at the museum and the way you were treated shapes the way that you work with the people that report to you? I think that's probably right. We're just such a different institution now than mm-hmm. we were then mm-hmm. because we I've grown with the institution. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to answer that question. I will say our curatorial department is all women mm-hmm. right now. And there are three of us. And then our, our director is also a woman. And she was there from the beginning of my career. She was the chief curator when I started working at the museum. So I've always had these role models who are women. And then, of course, Michael Opping was male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, you know, but I've seen strong leadership and strong women from the beginning of my career. And I think that's really impacted, yes, how I operate and the level of comfort slash professionalism that mm-hmm. I can bring to the table comes from those beginnings. Sure. And if sometimes if you can't see it, you can't achieve it. Mm-hmm. Some people are very visual. They have to see women mm-hmm. in these senior leadership roles to know, okay, I can do that as well. Um, you talk about that you're all women on your team right now. I I wonder, does that impact the types of exhibitions that you bring to the museum and the types of artists that you display their work and the narrative that you want their work to have within our community? I think, you know, just as I was talking about artists who it's difficult to be objective about your own work, I think there's a little bit of that with me but I w- and the team. But I will say we try really hard to be objective and fair and diverse. Mm-hmm. And the art world is filled with dead and living white men. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just have to face those facts. Sure. The majority of artists, and, and that's a whole other conversation that would take us another hour, <laughs> but there are so many artists who are outside of that mold, of course, who who and who have traditionally or historically been left out of art history. Mm-hmm. But we're not we're dealing with modern and contemporary. So we're not looking at revision. We're Mm -hmm. just looking at this giant pool of artists across the globe. And our mission is 1945 to the present, international in scope and in all media. Mm -hmm. So we are in a position to bring people in who we feel should be in the museum. Mm -hmm. And again, it's like super important uh, real estate that I feel really protective of. Mm -hmm. 
So it can't just, you know, it can't just be anyone. Well, there's a, you know, it's always a, uh, it's always a discussion. It's never just one person's decision. Sure. But what I think is to just have a big mix is Mm -hmm. the way to go. And for example, I did an exhibition with Laurie Simmons. Yes. And Laurie's an artist who has been working since the 1980s, diligently, whether or not there was a market for her work. Mm. And during having two children, Mm -hmm. she never stopped making art. Mm -hmm. She had series after series, even if she didn't have a place to show them or no one was looking, because her career has been a little up and down like that. In the 1980s in New York, when she started her career, it was filled with pompous white Black men, men. Mm-hmm. and they were they were sucking up all the air in the room mm-hmm. and so it was so good to get to look at her 40-year career and bring things out that had never been seen before but also I felt I'm just using this as an I example. love it keep going yeah I felt like it was such a great opportunity for any young female artist who walked in the doors to like see a reflection of themselves on the walls mm-hmm. and just to like just to look at something and an, an object you know in her case mostly a photograph and just identify with the fact that the artist was a woman with the fact that the artist has been doing that for 40 years right and to your earlier point she had children during this time she raised a family mm-hmm. sometimes her Creation was more prolific. Other times it was slower, but she continued to create art. And then you Mm -hmm. were able to show a a majority of that work or a large Mm -hmm. piece of that work for her. So art can be intimidating to some people. What are some of your tips for making it more approachable for someone who maybe feels intimidated to come in to the Modern Art Museum in Fort Worth? What do you suggest? How do you help them soften that for themselves and get a little more comfortable? Great question. And it's one that we all think about, <laughs> you know, a lot because we don't, we try to strike a balance between didactic information on the wall mm-hmm. um, so that maybe someone could read a little bit and be more comfortable, but we don't want the focus to be on the didactic information. Mm-hmm. We want the focus to be on the objects. On, on actual art. Mm-hmm. You know, just in general, when people ask me, like, or or when they just admit, like, I'm not that comfortable in the museum. I don't, it's like almost like sometimes that can be about decorum when you walk into a museum. And other times it's about like, I don't know how to engage with what's on the wall. But what I usually say just as a general idea is to remember that it is tied to the history and culture from which it came. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're all part of that, too, now. I mean, especially in the Modern Art Museum. So you can just draw on your own knowledge of, for example, pop culture or, you know, film or history. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to be open to the idea that you don't have to like something. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not about liking something it can be about being repulsed by something or mm-hmm. getting you know something that touches you in a way that makes makes you feel an emotion exactly good bad or otherwise i think artists create to create emotion that's my my thought and philosophy you may not agree with me but to your point i may not like something that they've created it may not appeal to me but 
I have an emotion about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what art is meant to do is stir emotion within us. And an artist is expressing themselves and expressing what's going on around them in the medium that they have. Mm -hmm. I run. That's how I express myself sometimes, you know, um, and deal with things. But another artist may take photographs or or paint or sculpt. I think it is it is like what you're describing. A lot of artists can't not do what they do. Mm. It's just, I don't want to say compulsive, but you know, it's, it's something within, it's, it's a form of therapy. It's cathartic. And I don't know that they always intend for it to evoke emotion in viewers, Mm -hmm. but most artists have a go-to language that they start with so that they don't get anxiety, for example, staring at a blank canvas. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see the same motifs recur within an artist's work, but they are doing little shifts or little ticks that make it different each Mm -hmm. time or that evolve it, that evolve it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just important to be open to any, any kind of reaction that you may have Mm -hmm. as a visitor you know, some reaction may be, this is complete BS. And another reaction may be, (laughs) you know, this speaks to me in my own history, or I see myself in this, or, you know, whatever it could be, it's all fine. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of getting more and more comfortable coming into the museum. Well, and one of the reasons that I admire you so much is the work that you do bring and exhibit at the museum, the works, I've felt that they are very approachable. And the works have brought in people to the Fort Worth Modern Art Museum that wouldn't maybe normally come. One of those that comes to mind is the exhibition from 2016 with Cause, uh, Where the End Starts. Mm -hmm. That was huge. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like the people that came to our museum, the number of different countries that were represented by the visitors and and maybe what that did for our community and also on a more global scale from an art perspective, what that did. Well, that exhibition was record-breaking for us. And so, but really it started a few years earlier because I did a small-scale exhibition with Cause, mm-hmm. a focus exhibition. And it was... Can you share what a focus exhibition is, please? Thank you. It's a small scale. We do three small scale solo exhibitions every year, and we call them the focus exhibitions. And it's really about, it doesn't matter how old or young an artist is or where they really are in their career, but it's about artists who haven't been represented in our area. Mm -hmm. So it's about bringing awareness to what's going on in the art world Oftentimes it is a young or emerging artist, but it doesn't have to be. In the case of Cause, he was emerging. He had had one exhibition and a solo exhibition in a museum before ours, but Mm -hmm. I did a focus exhibition with him. And what we noticed during that exhibition was that he had a young fan base and they were Kids were coming into the museum. I mean, I'm saying kids, but (laughs) sure, ranging up into their 30s. And going straight to his exhibition Mm -hmm. in the back of the first floor galleries and spending so much time in there. And these were faces we hadn't seen in the museum before. Let's take a minute and let's tell our listeners who Cause is. Okay. And what his art is like. Sure. Cause started his career as a graffiti artist in the late 1990s, and it's spelled K-A-W-S. And that was his tag 
and that's what he goes by still for everything he does now, which is not just fine art, but also collaborations Mm -hmm. with all kinds of other people from Dior to toy makers. So he started his career as a graffiti artist, and that was really about him being a middle-class kid without a lot of resources and not really understanding how you get in a museum, but Mm -hmm. wanting to make art that people could see. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you put something on the side of a building or, you know, on a train trestle, People have no choice but to see it if they're commuting or driving by it for any reason. I read somewhere that as a gift, someone gave him a key to unlock. I'm going to describe it like when you go to the movie theater and there are the movie posters and they're behind uh, Mm -hmm. plexiglass. But in New York City at bus stops, their uh, posters, advertorial posters Mm -hmm. are put behind plexiglass and locked up. And as a gift, someone gave him a key Mm -hmm. so he could easily get into those, remove the advertisement posters. Mm -hmm. He would take them back to his studio create his art on them, and then place them back. Did, did I read that properly? Is that a good description? Yes, the gift was from another graph artist, okay. you know, because the people who make art on the street need ways to get into things like bus shelters and advertisements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are certain tricks of the trade, and that was one of them. Mm-hmm. So someone gave him that tool, and he did interventions on advertisements. He mm-hmm. took them back to his studio, like you said, worked on them, and then put them back where they fit in the city, throughout mm-hmm. the city. People, st- He started to get a huge underground following. By that time, he started, he was in graduate school in New York and eventually worked his way into the museum. A lot of graffiti artists have just a fundamental problem with the institution philosophically mm-hmm. or ideologically, but Cause never did. He just didn't know how any other way to get his work in front of people. It wasn't really about being dissident, although, I mean, <laughs> there was some of that. But sure. it was, I mean, his goal was to be in the institution, and that's Interesting. sort of the opposite of a lot of graffiti artists. But, sure. but anyway, by the time he had the focus exhibition at the museum, he had a huge following, and it was just... It was just, we just didn't expect to have so many new visitors, mm-hmm. and it was so interesting to have young people engaging with the work in a way that we hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. So then when I did the larger exhibition in 2016, we did, and I don't have the stats, that is a different department, but we broke records and we had people from all over the world coming to see the exhibition here. Mm -hmm. Even though the exhibition was traveling to Shanghai when it left Fort Worth, a, a lot of people from China, for example, came to Fort Worth. Sure to see it here. And then they were also going to go and see it in Shanghai. And Mm -hmm. we literally had a line around the building for days, opening day. And then it continued. Right. And I believe the museum website crashed perhaps because people were trying to buy his figurines, toys. It was an amazing exhibition. And um, it was there three months to me as an outsider, not working at the museum. It really did feel like not just the art world's eyes were on us, but mm-hmm. to your point, pop culture, people who who follow his work. It really just gave a lot of exposure to our city and to the museum. And to me, it felt like art felt very accessible to everyone. It was an artist that sort of pulled everyone in, in my opinion. Did you feel that way at all? 
I do. I think that especially with cause, the way he uses universally understood symbolism mm-hmm. really resonates with almost anyone who sees the work and also the bodily gesture of his sculpture, for example, even though there are these hybrid cartoon animal human figures, mm-hmm. they're relatable because yeah. if one of them is slumped over, we recognize that as feeling weary. Or if one of them is, you know, has a chest puffed out, we can recognize that as like feeling good. Mm-hmm. So these are just like really basic, simple ways to relate. But the work is so relatable, like you said, to everyone of any generation that it's part of his appeal mm-hmm. as an artist. But we've so many other exhibitions like Cause have been accessible in new ways. Another one that comes to mind for me is Kehinde Wiley. Thank you for bringing that up. It was on my list to discuss. Please tell us more about. That was also originally a focus series artist. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So I organized a small exhibition with Kehinde Wiley, and it was the same thing as with Cause, really. There were three large paintings in that focus exhibition, and Kehinde was pretty young in his career, And at that time, what he was doing, he still does this, but he has other series as well. But he was taking paintings from the canon of art history, Mm -hmm. pretty well-recognized works of art that generally had a white male sitter. Mm -hmm. And he was replacing that white male sitter with contemporary Black men who were dressed in contemporary clothing like, you know, Air Force Ones Mm -hmm. and camo pants. And so, and these were just guys who he would see on the street and think they were, you know, just struck his interest for whatever reason. And he would ask them if he could paint them into one of these paintings. So the one that the modern owns is Colonel Platoff on his charger and it's a horse with a man on it. But the original sitter, Colonel Platoff, has been replaced with a contemporary urban, Mm -hmm. good-looking guy mm-hmm. in streetwear. Right. And so th- these paintings like cause just resonated with young people and especially we got a whole new demographic in the museum of people who for the first time maybe ever saw themselves in a painting uh-huh. or aspects of themselves in a painting. And so I feel like these kinds of shows Wiley cause Lori Simmons Mm -hmm. for women, for people of color, for younger generations have a kind of appeal that maybe other things, if you haven't studied art history or haven't been interested before, Mm -hmm. maybe didn't connect. Mm -hmm. But these, what these artists do really is connect to art history, but expand the discourse and bring it to new audiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not saying they're doing that on purpose or even trying to do that. It's just what happens. Sure. And so we, you know, we feel really happy to be able to show works like that. Absolutely. And I feel like what you and the museum are doing is exposing people to art. I mean, I look back at, you brought Murakami in Mm -hmm. and for the opening, there was the very formal 
patrons dinner Mm -hmm. and then post-opening the Jabberwockies performed Mm -hmm. and there was a rooftop party Mm -hmm. and a lot of younger people came and Murakami stood around and just signed autographs. Like he didn't even, it didn't even look like he wanted to go to the party. He just met Mm. everyone. I mean, and just like the opportunity to have Mm. that kind of engagement with an artist. I'm just so grateful to, that the museum is my, is in my own backyard Mm -hmm. and having that ability. Um, I think so too. And I, when, when I talk to young art history students or any students, or any young people, I always say that don't don't keep don't keep the museums here a secret, mm-hmm. you know, because and that's not like me trying to get people in the doors. It's a lot of people study art history through books. Sure. They can't see works of art firsthand. They can't do primary research because mm-hmm. they don't have the kinds of museums that we have sure. in Fort Worth accessible to them. And we're just so lucky. And I just, I don't want people to take it for granted. I want people to use these resources. Absolutely. There are many a Saturday where I will just go to the museum Mm -hmm. and I'll sit. Mm -hmm. I love Frank Stella's work. Mm -hmm. And there are a few pieces in the permanent collection. And I love to just sit in front of them. Mm -hmm. And it sounds strange. (laughs) And at first I felt really awkward. And then when I get in the museum, I'm like, no one's paying attention to me. And I can slowly stroll. And going back to the way art creates emotion, I see what bubbles up for me and I sit with it. And Mm -hmm. I I interpret the art in my own way. And Mm -hmm. I, I guess what I wanted to say to our listeners is that that's okay. There is no right or wrong mm-hmm. way to interpret art. And I think what you've done is bring it to our community. Well, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. There's no right or wrong way. And I agree with you. No one's paying attention mm-hmm. to what anyone is doing. Mm-hmm. If you're just sitting there walking around or, you know, we that's what we want. Right. Um, that interaction. That interaction and, and just... As slow or as fast as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes I go to museums and I just have a few minutes and maybe I just want to look at my favorite things and skip over everything else and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I don't want to, maybe I want to see something I've never seen before or Mm -hmm. spend time with something brand new and challenge myself more. Sure. Not just go to the comfort zones, you know. I want to talk about Catherine Bernhardt. She was part of a focus series as well. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about her art? Yes, that was Allison's show as well. And she was incredible to be around and, you know, her work is really crazy mm-hmm. and a lot of people relate to it because it has Doritos in it or cigarettes or sure. I don't know toilet paper parakeets, <laughs> parakeets. right right yeah. and it's large scale pieces of art that to your point are relatable you're not left to interpret a tremendous mm-hmm. amount initially I, I, I don't believe from from the work and so it feels accessible well, you know I was saying earlier that part of what is important to me as a curator is that there's some level of it you know, accessibility for people who walk in. And mm-hmm. and with the Lori Simmons exhibition, it, it was, again, like the idea that a woman might come in, a woman artist, a mm-hmm. young artist, and think, I can do this too. Look what she did in these, look what Lori Simmons did in these 40 years. Mm-hmm. Or Lori Simmons exhibition was about gender and prescribed gender roles mm-hmm. and going outside of those boundaries and staying in those boundaries. And I thought that was another interesting aspect of mm-hmm. that exhibition for anyone. You know, gender is such a salient topic today. Correct. I 
thought that that was another interesting angle to that exhibition, although that wasn't the impetus for me wanting to do it. Well, I wondered if, if like, the current political and social climate impacted your desire to have her exhibition. It was just really timely <laughs> by accident, uh-huh. almost, you sure. know, because when when you work on an exhibition, I had been working on that exhibition for three years uh-huh. before the doors opened to it. So when I first began talking to her, it really, we, I mean, the climate was different than it is now or when her show opened. Right. And so it was just like lucky timing. And that happens a lot with exhibitions. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you, it's it's like with anything else, you just, you just feel it in the air or you feel like you've got, you know, your finger on the pulse of something by accident or mm-hmm. I don't know. And so sure. sometimes that just works out and you, that can just be intuitive or lucky. Mm-hmm. I think way. it's intuitive. I think you're cutting edge. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just everything I feel like in my career has been about luck and timing. And mm-hmm. um, but but the other exhibition that had, I feel like a huge impact and really resonated with people locally, nationally, internationally, was the Mexico Inside Out exhibition right. um, from 2013 that I worked for years on. Mm. And Allison Hurst, our associate curator, also worked with me on that exhibition. There were 23 artists included. But I think, again, it was like me not realizing what would happen when mm-hmm. that exhibition opened. Well, first of all, I wanted to do an exhibition about conceptual art in Mexico, but I didn't know how to do that because I'm not a Latin Americanist. Mm -hmm. So this is another example of having to be brave. Mm. And I'm just talking about myself right now, but really I want to talk about what the exhibition did. Sure, sure. um, But so at first I thought I'll do an exhibition of Mexican-American and Mexican artists. Okay. Or, you know, artist in Texas and then artist in Mexico City. But I realized quickly that conceptually that that's very different. It's very different to be first generation here or whatever, having grown up here versus being in Mexico. Right. The content was too different. It didn't make sense. Mm. And then I thought, well, I'm a woman. I'll do women artists in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And this was after several trips back and forth to try to figure out, you know, what was going on and what the exhibition could be about. And then finally realizing, oh, I don't need an in. I contemporary art is what I do. And these are contemporary artists. And, you know, they don't want to be pigeonholed in any particular way. Sure. It was already bad enough that I was like sort of wanting the word Mexico to be in the title. And and because artists don't like to be pigeonholed and they want to be accessible to everyone. And I get that. Sure. But we needed an introductory exhibition here. Even though we neighbor with Mexico, we hadn't Nobody in Texas had really done a big show like this right? in 30 years or something. So we needed the big intro to what artists in Mexico were doing. But what happened is still today, I will occasionally still get an email saying how much that exhibition impacted someone as a viewer. Interesting. Because it 
you know, people have written to say, like, this is where my parents came from. Uh And it really resonated with me. Or I brought my parents and they were able to tell me about what it was like before they were in this country or what it was like to have people in Mexico, but be removed from them. Or, you know, it just, it really opened a lot of dialogue. And Mm. it's not that I didn't expect it exactly, but I... But I didn't expect it. Yeah, I just didn't know (laughs) how impactful it was actually going to be. And the fact that it's still having its impact that you still hear from people. Um, And and I also heard from some people who didn't like, you know, what it was portraying. Mm -hmm. Um, So so I heard both sides of the coin. Do, Do you face criticism in your role? A lot of criticism for the different exhibitions that you bring in? Or is there someone within the museum that kind of insulates you from from that? Uh, both. I mean, you know, we have PR and marketing sure. and, um, but I guess philosophically, again, we want to, we want to bring things to the table and not have our audience train us. That sounds awful. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say that in the right way, but we just, we want to open discussion good or bad, and we don't want to shy away from something if somebody didn't like it. Sure. And I have had criticism driven toward me, and mm-hmm. then we as a museum get criticism, of course. Sure. And and again, that's it's all okay. Well, I was going to say, how do you deal with that? Because in a society today where everyone is a critic, yeah, <laughs> um, I think we're apt to take it on more than maybe in the past. So how do you deal with that direct criticism of yourself? Do you internalize it? Do you talk to someone about it? Do you run it out? Mm-hmm. How does that impact your work? Um, I jazzercise it out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, and where do you do jazzercise? On 8th Avenue, the oh. only jazzercise place in Fort Worth. Um, but, um, we just, I don't know that any of our listeners are as as old as you and I to understand what jazzercise is. No, but that's totally. from the but 80s. There are young girls in there. Oh, there I love are. It. it ranges from like in your 70s to TCU girls to younger. So. I love it. I'm going to come meet you for that. It, I love jazzercise. Please do. It's super dorky, or at least the way I do it is. And <laughs> um, and I love it. But, okay. um, but we don't want to alienate anyone in the museum. Mm-hmm. But we want to welcome dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and criticism is included in that dialogue. I have taken it personally. Mm-hmm. You know, you get very wedded to things you work on for years and years. And so, but it goes back to what I was saying about the analogy to a lawyer. Like, you know, my job really is to defend what I've done or, you know, argue what I've done mm-hmm. or stick to my guns or, and, but also be open sure. to, to learning mm-hmm. and as well. So, well, yeah. And once it, once the exhibition is in the works and mm-hmm. certainly once it's up on the walls, it's there mm-hmm. and you're not going to change it. And yeah, that criticism might come in and thank you so much for your opinion. I appreciate it. And, mm-hmm. and then you just have to move on. Um, right. And, you know, everything takes on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. And so you just kind of have to be ready for that. And I've gotten thicker skin over the years, but it is easier to criticize now, mm-hmm. you know. It's not a huge part of every exhibition, but it happens occasionally. Sure. What's next for you? 
Well, um, we have some very exciting new works that I in the collection that I can't even say what they are <laughs> okay. yet, but they'll be coming up in the fall, and I can't wait to have them out in the galleries. We also have a Mark Bradford exhibition opening in uh, the spring that okay. everyone's really excited about. So we have a lot, a lot, and we have a lot. We have a, a woman artist, Robin O'Neill, up in the galleries on the second floor right now. I was going to say, this, we're recording this in November. And so what is at the museum currently? Yes. So so Robin O'Neill will mm-hmm. still be up. And then we we also have our permanent collection. We have a new permanent collection catalog. So we tried to put up a lot of our greatest hits that mm-hmm. are featured in the catalog now. Right. So um, and that. This catalog hasn't been done in like 17 years, so it was oh wow, well overdue. Okay, um, so yes, we have we have a lot coming right up, and I, I I just again like I I hope people will understand something about the museum better if they've listened to this podcast sure. and 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 feel comfortable coming into the museum. Well, and one thing I can add as far as going to the museum, there is the Modern Contemporaries. Mm-hmm. That is an organization for, I believe, 35 and under. Yes. And that is originally how I got involved mm-hmm. with the museum, was participating in that. I think the fee is like for a couple, maybe like $175, maybe it's $250. Don't quote me on that. But that's a great way mm-hmm. to get engaged. There, there are um, opportunities to come in, private events just for the modern contemporaries, mm-hmm. usually focused around a happy hour or something of that nature. And it's very educational. There are a lot of people involved that this is their first time being exposed to art. And so I would encourage any of our listeners who have an interest in something like that to check out the modern contemporaries for our museum. But I do know that other museums across the country mm-hmm. also have similar programs. Mm-hmm. So you should investigate that. When when someone's new to Fort Worth and they're asking me, how do I get involved? How do I get engaged? Mm-hmm. It's the one example that I consistently use because it was so impactful for me. So absolutely. I think that's a great place to start. And if if that commitment is too much until, you know, a person knows what more about the museum. We also have free lectures on Tuesday nights open to the public oh, wow. yes, throughout the school right. year. So there are lots of programs on on every level to get in the door and figure out if it's, you know, if it's of interest and hopefully it will be. <laughs> I love that. Well, we've talked a, a lot about accessibility. And in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how you developed uh, your career. I'm curious, is there any piece of advice that you'd give to your younger self? Like now looking back and reflecting on the career you've built, or is mm-hmm. there something you'd tell your younger self that might be valuable to someone else to hear? I chose to do what I loved for money or like, you know, I made a career out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think I would have made that same choice no matter what, but it changes what you love in a way because you get your you're an insider then, mm. you know, you you know so much. And so I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't trade my career for anything. It's just that I still philosophically don't know how I fall on that. If I think it's better to do what you do for money, something you have mm. an interest in and keep what you love because you love it. As your passion As and your not passion. something you're making money from. Yeah. And, um, but that's weird because, I mean, you want to do something that you feel passionate about every day when you go to work. So um, I don't know. The other thing, I mean, that's just something I think about. But I think, you know, what I would have told my younger self is 
just be brave mm. and don't worry about as as long as you're prepared mm-hmm. and you know your subject, don't worry about what comes out or how people perceive it or what, you know, if you said the exact right words or if you presented something that everyone relates to, because that just almost never happens and right. it doesn't matter as long as there's a dialogue happening around art history, you know, that's the important thing, or around an exhibition or a piece of art. Just be brave. I think it's so sometimes hard in the moment to grasp that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm the type of person I analyze everything. So one thing, I've got five different scenarios for how it could play out. Mm -hmm. And in the end, there's no right answer. Yeah. There's no right way to do it. So just being brave and stepping out mm-hmm. and owning your decision, owning your purpose, I think, uh, I think uh, is important. Same. I think it's really important. And I think um, it took me a while to be comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we all have different contributions to make. Mm-hmm. So any one of them is valid, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why we should just be brave. And, mm-hmm. you know, it sounds so simplistic, but it really is I think it's a value, like Mm -hmm. not to worry too much. Sure, sure. As long as there's conviction and we know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. You you do have to know what you're talking about. um, But at the same time, you you just got to step out there and do Mm -hmm. it. So this is the Fierce Lab podcast. And the one question that I ask everyone is, what does the word fierce mean to you? I think, you know, fierce is such a power word. So mm-hmm. it for me, it means strength and power mm-hmm. and really bravery, what we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, for me, the implication of Fierce Lab as a podcast is unafraid to traverse any topic or, mm-hmm. or go anywhere. So, yeah. I love that. Strength and power mm-hmm. and unafraid to traverse any topic. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Well, Andrea, thank you for joining me in studio today. I've loved hearing about your career. I think you have some wonderful insights that our listeners will be able to take away. And I just appreciate that you've given me this time. Thank you, Tara. It was really fun. Thanks for listening today. If you liked this episode, do me a favor and subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend. With your help, we'll grow the Fierce Lab community. And I would love to stay in touch. You can find me on Instagram at Tara M. Wilson. 